America is the greatest country the world has ever known. We are a nation of immigrants, pioneers, and patriots. Together, we create the bold, beautiful fabric that is America. We are the city upon the hill, a beacon to the world. America is the land of freedom and unlimited opportunity. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every Friday as I spotlight those who embody the American values of faith, courage, and heroism. We the people have stories to share, stories to uplift and inspire. You will feel proud, humbled, and blessed to call yourself an American. Mariela Roca was born in Puerto Rico. Raised by a single mother, Mariela and her brother learned the lesson of resiliency through the example of a loving, hard-working mother. Now running for Congress as a Republican in Maryland's 8th District, this Air Force veteran is determined to stand up for veterans and military families and be a voice for the Latino and Hispanic communities. This is Mariela's American Story. Welcome to this episode of We the People, Our American Story. My guest today is Mariela Roca. Mariela, thank you for being here. Well, thank you for inviting me. This is awesome. I'm excited. Well, I know you have a story to share. Let's not wait. Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood? Yeah, of course. So I'll just start from the beginning. I was born in uh, Puerto Rico, San Juan, Puerto Rico. Uh, my mom uh, was a nurse. Single mom brought myself and my brother up alone. Uh, so when we were three, we actually moved from Puerto Rico to New York City. So we lived in Queens. We moved to Queens, New York, and we lived there for about 10 years. We didn't have much, but we always had a nice warm bed, food to eat, and like nice clothes. So she like really took good care of us. And I think I get a lot of my uh, perseverance from her. Like she could just do anything. I just remember. <laughs> So we lived in New York for about uh, 10 years. I did elementary and half of middle school. And then when I was 13, we just decided to move back to Puerto Rico. I ended up finishing eighth grade and then finished high school. And, you know, it was just me, my mom and my brother. We had a little house where we lived. So we were always tight knit. It was nice to be in Puerto Rico because we had our family on my mom's side that we can always spend time with. Um, but I think now looking back, I don't think I would have been where I'm at now if we hadn't like spent that time in New York City. A lot of people ask me, you're from Puerto Rico, you don't even have an accent. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, no, yes, let me explain. Spanish is my, was my first language, but I learned English when I was about three or four in New York City. My mom always told me, me and my brother just learned from listening to the other kids. I wish that there was uh, more uh, smartphones back then because I don't even have I don't think I have any videos of when I was a kid it would have been funny to see how if my mom had videos of me and my brother trying to learn English do you remember <laughs> just only knowing Spanish no I don't I, I don't remember that part of learning English too much like my earliest memory of that was I remember we were in a like ESL class and I remember our teacher was kind of talking to me like a little bit separately but I don't ever remember feeling confused or anything. <laughs> what is the difference living in Puerto Rico 
versus living in the United States. What are some differences there? I think the biggest difference, obviously, is the weather. Obviously, New York has uh, all the seasons, hot summer, all the way to the extreme winter. I remember we were in, in New York for the blizzard of 97, and I remember there was so much snow that there was like a five-foot pool that was covered. It was crazy. So biggest thing is the weather. I think also tying into the weather about two weeks after we moved to Puerto Rico when we were 13, Hurricane George hit Puerto Rico. And that was like a really bad hurricane. Uh, It was like cat five and we lost our water supply for about a week and we didn't have electricity for a whole month. So I would say that in the resources, that was just a complete difference. New York, you can get on the subway, go wherever you wanted to go. We were in Puerto Rico. My mom didn't have a car in New York, but it was okay because you can go anywhere. You don't even need a car. Puerto Rico, you kind of need a car. Um, School was a lot different. It's funny because when I went back to Puerto Rico, I had a little bit of an accent when I was speaking Spanish. It was the weirdest thing. (laughs) (laughs) So I got made fun a little bit about that. As the years went by, my my little bit of an accent kind of went away. So your mother, a U.S. citizen. Yes. Yeah. When you're born in Puerto Rico, you're a U.S. citizen. You are. Okay. I wasn't sure how that worked, but you don't vote in the national elections. No, 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 no. So because of crazy, isn't it? Yes. That's one of the things that I really just being in Puerto Rico, that was one of the things too. I remember like after I graduated high school and I got my first job and I was able to like vote. I never really paid attention to like the national elections because you can vote for the president. You can only vote for like local, like government, governor and that kind of stuff. What are the advantages of keeping it a territory? Do you know? I don't know. I just know the disadvantages for the people of Puerto Rico. Which are what? One of the big, yeah, one of the biggest things. It's like everything is so expensive over there. My cousin, she came to visit me about... Uh, two months ago and we went to home goods to look for some stuff and she's like oh my god I need to get this I need to get that like (laughs) something as simple as like an agenda a planner a yearly planner it was like what like seven ten bucks if it's a nicer one at home she said in Puerto Rico something like that would cost 30 or 40 bucks because everything is so expensive that they have the Jones Act which is a bill or law that says that any imports to Puerto Rico have to come through the U.S. And every ship that comes into Puerto Rico has to be, I think, 75% manned by American people. Therefore, even if um, Dominican Republic or another country is closer to Puerto Rico, you can't get stuff from them. It has to come from the U.S., which makes you're basically paying two or three times more for something. Would you like to see Puerto Rico become a state? Yeah, I think so. Growing up in Puerto Rico, I, I lived there. I went to school there. I graduated high school there. I went for your college and just seeing that side of things and seeing how it is, how good it could be to be a state. And even on the flip side, it's my opinion that if Puerto Rico were to become a state, the financial, like the tax burden would be alleviated because if you live in Puerto Rico, the average Puerto Rican doesn't pay federal taxes. Oh, but 
you get, you pay social security in your like paycheck, but you don't pay federal taxes, but you're still a territory. There's still some benefits that you can get. FEMA, when there's a natural disaster, I think that's one of the benefits to finance because when you become a state, you know, you'll now pay taxes, but also I feel like things like the infrastructure and education and other benefits would be so much easier for the people of Puerto Rico because I think now they basically have to beg the United States for certain benefits. Whereas if they were a state, I mean, I know if that, if it would ever to happen, it, it'll be a long process of figuring things out and like getting acclimated. So it's going to be a long process, but just being able to have the same level set benefits as another state, I think, and only in the best for Puerto Rico. That is such a weird position to be in. I know. And then one of the things too is I don't, I, I, even Guam and like the U.S. Virgin Islands, they can't vote for the president. Like I think if you're a territory, you're born a U.S. citizen, you should be able to. Doesn't matter if you're a territory or your state, you should be able to. If you're born a U.S. citizen, you should be able to. If you can join the military like I did from Puerto Rico, you should be able to vote for the president. I need to learn more about all this because I don't understand <laughs> it at all. Yeah, no, no, no. Even even when I joined the Air Force and I left Puerto Rico because I was active duty, my home of record was Puerto Rico and my paycheck, my home of record was Puerto Rico for tax purposes. So therefore, I was never like registered for the, in the state of Maryland where I was stationed or Florida. I still have my Puerto Rican driver's license because when you're in the military, you can keep your home of record stuff. I still couldn't vote for the president unless I changed my home of record to a state. Now that you brought up the military, how did that come about? When did you first get an interest in joining the military and why did you choose that branch? Um, So my brother had already joined the military. I was, I think in like 10th or 11th grade when he joined, he joined the Marines from Puerto Rico and he had left. He actually was in basic training on 9-11. Oh, wow. The day that happened, he was in basic training. And I remember two days after, two, three days after that whole thing happened, my mom had to get on a plane because she's like, I'm going to my son's graduation. And I remember her telling me uh, there was like two people on the plane, but he had already left. I feel like he always wanted to be in the military. I just, from all, what I can always remember, he always wanted to join the military and he wanted to join the Marines. So he had already left. It had been a couple of years and I actually had taken the ASVAB, the military entrance test one day in high school in, in my senior year, because I'm, I'm not sure if they do that a lot here in the States. I'm sure they do, but the, the recruiters had a day that they came to the school to like offer the test. So me and my friend were like, oh, let's go take the test because we want to skip class. So we went and I actually like was the only one that passed the test that day. About, I I don't even remember how many of us were, you know, and then the recruiters obviously started calling me and I was just like, no, I don't want to join. It's okay. I know. I remember uh, the army recruiter was calling me. He called me so many times and I'm like, no, no, no. The air force recruiter called me once and I told them no. And they were like, okay, whenever you're ready just we're here and your ASVAB test lasts for two years, I believe. I graduated high school, decided that I was going to go to college. I actually wanted to be a dentist. (laughs) So I was in pre-med and 
I just woke up one day and said, I think it's time I'm going to join the military. And it's like the strangest thing, but you know, I had my brother that as an example, he actually was, you know, had been in out for a while. And he said, if you ever join the military, you have to join the Air Force. You better join the Air Force because just being here and he had already deployed, it, it'll be better for you, especially for a female. So, so that's what I did. I joined the Air Force. My mom was a single mom. So I, I, we were kind of struggling and I kind of wanted to ease the financial burden off of her for a, a little so yeah, that's why I joined. The Air Force is probably, how do I say it? The most cushy out of the franchise. Yeah. Right? I'm sure yes, you see the memes that go around with different yes, yes. branches. There's, there's always the, uh, from all the other service, like, oh, you Air Force people, you guys, you got it easy, don't you? <laughs> You're like, oh yeah, that's why they're, they're, we're all the smart ones. Because yeah. Work smarter, not harder. It's still difficult, like especially going through basic training like I had never done anything that like that before I actually remember um getting because it was me and another guy that joined at the same time and they sent us both and he was so nervous because his English was not very good and he was like so scared but we got there and and here I am (laughs) how long were you in the air force I was in the Air Force for about five years. And where did you serve? My first duty station was Andrews Air Force Base here in Maryland. I was there for a couple of years. And then, so I joined in 2005. In 2007, I, I went on my first deployment. I got deployed to Afghanistan. So I was there for an Af- in Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan for about six months. That was very interesting, <laughs> to say the least. And then when I came back, I obviously came back to Andrews. And then a couple years after, in 2009, I was moved to McDill Air Force Base in Tampa, Florida. And then I was there for about a year. And then I deployed again. This time I was deployed to Qatar in the uh, Middle East. I'm curious to know about Afghanistan and what your feelings were about being there. And did you have fears? Was it completely foreign, like a different world or not really because you were on base? What was your experience like there? Actually, I was thinking about that uh, the other day. When I got my orders, I don't remember feeling scared. I actually was almost excited when you're in the military and basic training they kind of you know this is what they train you for they train you to be resilient they train you to get the job done thinking back now in this age I were told hey you're gonna get deployed especially after having kids back then I didn't have kids yet I probably would have not been as calm as I was so yeah I mean that was the whole adventure to get there and we got there there in January so it actually snows in Afghanistan I did not know that yes 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 so we got there in January and it was really cold so I remember that as soon as I got off the plane I wasn't expecting that there was going to be snow and I actually slipped and fell because I didn't realize I'm like oh I'm going to Afghanistan it's just going to be hot no it was actually it's it was cold and it snowed it was actually pretty quiet you know most of the time I was there I was only there for six months because when it's cold, Afghani people, their homes are not like ours. There's not a lot of insulated homes. So they were mostly inside. So it was pretty quiet. Um, I actually was 
uh, assigned to the military prison there at Bagram Air Base. I, so I had my job in the Air Force, I was a medical logistics technician. So I coordinated all the logistics of bringing in the medical equipment and supplies. So there was an actual clinic in the, the, the prison to kind of take care of the prisoners and the detainees. So that was an experience in itself. I don't remember being scared. I just kind of felt like I was, I had a sense of pride. Like I was, you know, doing my part in trying to help in any way that I could, if that makes any sense. You were dealing then with what prisoners? Afghani prisoners. Mm. Prisoners that were, however, I don't even know what the process was. They were detained by military forces because of whatever reason. And then they were brought back to the military prison in Afghanistan. They were just housed there. And a lot of them had medical issues. Maybe they got hurt while they were out. Um, So they would, in the prison, they had an actual clinic with doctors. Me and my coworker that was there, we were there to make sure that all the doctors and the nurses and the technicians had all the medical supplies they needed. What was your interaction like with them? Because number one, it's just such a foreign population. And we know how a lot of them feel about women in that part of the world. What was it like being around them? It was definitely interesting out there. We didn't know that we were going to, me and my coworker was the two of us. We didn't know that we were going to be assigned there. We thought we were going to Afghanistan and we were going to the main hospital on post. So we literally got off the plane, tried to figure it out where the hospital was and walked over there. And the person that was in charge looked at us and said, wait a minute, I was only expecting 10 people. Now that's 12. Like I, my numbers are not adding up there. And then she's like, oh, okay. You know, well, they must've messed up the numbers. I guess I got two extra loggies. <laughs> and a couple of days later, they were looking for us because they knew that we had landed based on the manifest from the plane. So they, they were calling around to see where we were at. Cause we didn't even know. I didn't even think it was written in our orders. There was like some code that whoever could get on the computer knew, but we didn't know. So when we finally got over there, I wasn't really supposed to have any interaction, but the area was so small and crammed that there's no way you walked in to get to where the clinic, you're walking in front of where there were cows. And I mean, we had to cover our names up so that they couldn't see because, and we couldn't call each other by our names. We had to call each other by initials. So I was R because my last name's Roka. Did that go for everybody there? Doctors, nurses, everyone? Yeah. Wow. So I remember there was a physical therapist doctor and they used to call her sports doctor. <laughs> They're like, oh, like, sports doctor, you. And then she, she was a sports doctor. <laughs> did the doctors but, and nurses um, wear their tags in or did they just not have their tags on? This was back when the BDUs and the ABUs were in, not the newer uniforms where everything was sewn on. Okay. So we had to... Basically, when we walked in, they would give us a strip of black tape and you would have oh, to tape over. Okay. Now, I'm assuming if you, we had the uniforms now, you could just rip it off because it was Velcro. So, I mean, our interaction, they see you every day. They start to remember the people that are coming in and, you know, they yell at you. They scream at you. They're like, hey, you come here. And I mean, I just kind of tried to walk and ignore, but 
in the weirdest sense, after a while, you start recognizing people. And I remember after a while I was there, we really didn't have a lot to do. We were done with our medical logistics tasks that I actually went out with some of the technicians to pass out the medicines. And I remember, obviously they're like, they look at you, they scream, they're like, oh, they kind of started screaming, like not so nice things at you to kind of get her out. Like you said, to them females in their country, they would never even see a, a female in the position that we were at in. But I mean, I tried to be nice to them if that kind of made any sense. I mean, I wasn't there, it wasn't my job to judge them or figure out why they were there. My job was there to take care of the medical supplies. And then the times that I went out there when I was helping, my job was to pass out their medications. Um, I remember there was another girl uh, that was there. She was an actual medical technician and she was not, I don't want to say not so nice because you know, you're, you're dealing with who are supposed to be the bad people. So you're not really supposed to be nice, but in the situation, she would always yell at them. And they were like, always like treat her terribly. And I would come in and say, hey, have more of a calm demeanor or a nicer demeanor. I wouldn't yell at them. And they actually kind of started liking me more than the other person because I would come call out because they had numbers. You would call them out and you would pass out. And I would, I don't know, in a sense, treat them like a human being. Like, I'm here to give you your medicine. Please come get it. Not yelling them like, you know, get over here, get your stuff now type thing. What did the military teach you? Were there any lessons you learned? Definitely resilience. Like in that situation, like I didn't, wasn't even expecting, that wasn't even what I was thinking. Resilience and adapting to your environment. A lot of camaraderie. You, you meet so many people, your coworkers are in the Air Force, your fellow airmen. Camaraderie, you know, I feel like that's where I get a lot of my sense of wanting to help people. Um, I feel like in, at work and all the jobs that I've ever had, I've always tried to be the person where I always want to help others. Like I always want to help the new person coming in, share my knowledge. And also I learned a lot of pride. I feel like that's probably where I, you know, being in the military is where I got my pride for this country. You know, I was born in Puerto Rico, but I'm still an American. I, I learned a lot of pride in what I was doing. Where did you go after the Air Force? What happened? So I actually, on my second deployment, I was in my last two weeks of my deployment and I got a Red Cross message that I had to come home because my mom was in the hospital. I've always heard there's an emergency and you're somewhere in the military, you go to the Red Cross and then they'll find them wherever they're at. And I never expected to be getting one day a Red Cross message. So, you know, the Red Cross message basically say I had to get home because my mom was in the hospital because she had a brain tumor. It literally said it on the Red Cross message because like I was thinking about it the other day too. Why would they put that on there? They could have just said there's an emergency, like come home, don't tell me what the problem is. That was a whirlwind. I had to come home quick. My mom ended up having a stage four brain tumor, but the worst kind of tumor that she could get. Um, so I became her caregiver because she was living with me in Florida when I was deployed. So I became her caregiver and that was eventually why I ended up getting out of the Air Force because it was just me and it was just very hard. So I requested a early separation because I had already re-enlisted. 
unfortunately, my mom passed away a year and a half after that. She tried to go through the treatment and her body just couldn't take it. Um, so she eventually passed away. Being a caregiver to someone, especially someone that is terminally ill, is probably one of the hardest things that anybody can do. Just going through that whole thing, dealing with healthcare. I remember her first dose of her chemo. Our copay was about $2,000 for a 30-day supply. This was 10 years ago. $2,000 with inflation is probably a couple grand more than that. Healthcare and affordable like prescription costs, especially for life-saving costs, is one of the things that I want to work to help people because I don't want anybody to ever go through that. You're so desperate. And you're like, yeah, I'm going to pay no matter what, if this is going to save my parents' life. So I eventually got out of the Air Force when she passed away. And I ended up in Frederick, Maryland. So I, I was stationed in, in Maryland. Then I went to Florida. I ended up back in Maryland because the father of my kids, he was stationed here at, at Fort Detrick. So that's kind of how I ended up back over here. And I... Uh, eventually transitioned to civilian life. I continued doing medical logistics now for the army. I did that for about 10 years. Yes. (laughs) So I was in the air force active duty and then got out and worked for the army as a civilian. Do you get grief about that? About uh, from the army folks? Oh yeah. All the time. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And the, the, the funny part is I got so used to army custom and the lingo because both times that I was deployed, I wasn't deployed with the Air Force. I was embedded with the Army. I'll never so, understand any of this. Can I just tell you, Mariella? It is all so that's confusing. Okay. It is all I so still don't confusing. understand all of it. I don't know how they think. The first deployment in Afghanistan, we were there. Like my unit was all Air Force. But at the prison, the Army was kind of in charge, and we were just there. Medical was Air Force, but everybody else was Army. How do they and even the keep track time, of everybody? Or maybe ooh. they don't. That's the problem. There must be some magical computer somewhere where they kind of wow. like, you know how they have the, the, the map of the planes in the sky? Yeah. <laughs> you were on that map. You were one of those little yeah. pins, Mariela. Yes. <laughs> well, as far as a caregiver goes, My goodness, my hat is off to you because um, I know a little bit about that. As a part-time caregiver, I had two sisters that died from breast cancer. My mom died from colon cancer. So I understand that beast cancer as well. And it's exhausting being a part-time caregiver. And I can remember I spent some nights with my sister over at her house her husband traveled a lot and she had a baby. We actually found out she had cancer when she was pregnant and she had a little baby. And I, I'm sure you experienced this too. I can remember going over there and going, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. Like you're going to have a panic attack Yeah. and being by yourself and handling all that. Oh my goodness. It's a good thing that you have that resiliency. I feel like I got a lot part of it from my mom. She would just go like, I remember when she went to visit my brother, when she went from Puerto Rico to Paris Island for his graduation, she didn't know where she was going. There wasn't GPSs really back then. So she had to like print out a a map quest or get a map, find her way there. She just did it. 
And I probably should have joined the military else. just to re- learn how to read a map. I still can't read a map. When my husband, when we used to travel together before GPS, and I was supposed to be reading the map, most of the time he would have to pull over to the side of the road and look at the map himself. <laughs> like, I can't do this. I can't stay. I think we were supposed to get off that road. I'm like, what would we do nowadays without GPS and smartphones? I remember when they first started to come out that it was like a luxury. You had to go yeah. buy one. Now it's part of your phone, even in your cars. Most cars now come with Apple CarPlay or Android, whatever they call it. Yeah. And it's just integrated. What would we do? (laughs) Well, Mariella, I know you are on a journey now. You have entered the world of politics. What is that all about? What are you running for? Why did you decide to do that? And is it as bad as everyone says it is to enter the world of politics? Oh my goodness. I think that's the first time I've gotten asked that question. Is it as bad as people think? All right. So I am running for Congress for House of Representatives. Um, District 8. Maryland has eight districts. So I'm running in the 8th district. And I just decided to run for office. I don't know. It's just something in me kind of like when I decided I wanted to join the Air Force. I think we're all, a lot of us can say we're tired of seeing what's going on, the fighting and the not getting along. Our elected officials seem to not be able to work together. And I've just always had the model, if you don't like something, how it's being done, maybe try to do something about it yourself. This is my way of trying to make things better. I got interested in Congress a couple years ago, but my kids were little. And I think like a lot of people, I really wasn't paying attention to politics. I didn't really know what a Congress, what Congress did. And I started researching it and it really interested me. And I felt like that would be something that I would want to do, but my kids were little and it just kind of went away. And then within the last year, all those feelings came back. It was just something that I just kept thinking of. I kept waking up when I went to bed and I said, I have to try. Something is talking to me. I have to try to do this. And everything has lined itself up so far in a way that I just know that in this very moment of my life, this is what I have to try to do. Now, is it as bad as everybody thinks? Is it all about backbiting and? About what? backbiting, you know, talking behind people's backs and they smile at you and then they turn around like that, Mariella. I think there's a little bit of that. There's a lot of that. I would say that now that I'm in this and I've been navigating in the last three months, I've learned so much about politics and the process that I've ever known in my 36 years of life. At the root of it, at the very basics, it is not rocket science. It is not hard to do. It seems like it is too. It seems so complicated or do they make it seem that way on TV? (laughs) It's very complicated in the sense that you have to do a lot of networking. You've got to talk to people. If you've never done that before, then that could be a little bit harder. It is very hard in the financial side. You have to fundraise a lot of money. Isn't that so sad that you have to have the money to do that when any person should be able to run, but you need money now. That was one of the questions. Why do I need so much money? So I do understand you need to print out flyers, you need to print out t-shirts, you need to print out yard signs, those kinds of things, but you don't need $10 million to do that. And they've made it so that 
it's who can fundraise the most. The top dollar guy is the one that gets paid attention the most, even though you don't need $10 million to run a campaign. And I think that's like the most difficult part about this. I really do think there needs to be stricter laws on the amounts that every person can fundraise. Because if I'm a millionaire and I got a billion dollars in the bank, I can just write myself a check for $20 million. How do you keep yourself from getting frustrated over that then? I'll let you know. I I just have my days kind of like anything. And again, the resilience from being in the military and all the things that I've gone through in my life so far, have a bad day. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go to bed now. I'm going to spend time with my kids, go to bed. And tomorrow's going to be another day. And I have been so lucky that I've met so many great people that have wanted to help me and are willing to help me and are helping me. That's one of the biggest things that I was worried about because I'm not a politician. I was never in politics before. So nobody knew me. And I was worried that when I started reaching out to the different groups, they were going to look at me and say, oh, who's this chick? Did you think of starting off at a lower level? I did. I did. And I get asked that question a lot. I just feel like the reason why my mind went straight to Congress is because I've been in the federal for so long. Being a federal employee and then being in the military, I kind of have had that experience and see that side of things and seeing how broken it is. You know, now that I'm a veteran, I get my care 100% through the VA. And it's so hard to get medical care through the VA, especially for me, a person that has resources. Could you imagine Now I know why there's so many veterans that are homeless and struggling because it's so difficult. Isn't that so so wrong? It makes me so upset. Even when my niece was there with her husband, he was there for a broken arm. The funniest thing, he's in the Air Force. They're at Travis, actually. (laughs) And he was in Greenland. Here's a funny story. He was in Greenland. They had nothing to do. So they would work out all the time, arm wrestle. He broke Mm -hmm. his arm, arm (sighs) wrestling. And it took him, yeah, it took him a week to get off of Greenland. What happened is that by the time he got here, he got to the States, it's his nerves were all damaged in his hand. It took a year for him to get all the feeling back. My niece hated staying at Walter Reed. She stayed in the dorms with him. And unfortunately, she said it was a depressing place to be. And I know that there's good care there, but I think that there's not enough people and they're so overworked that the ones that aren't there aren't able to do everything. And our veterans are the ones who deserve the help and should get the help first. Yes. And I think part of that is, you know, like I said, this is why I'm more interested in Congress because those things, you know, at a lower level, I really can't necessarily help with the VA. Um, I can't necessarily help with the issues that... I have seen being in, you know, the federal government, you know, that's why I, I want to run for Congress to help. I and mean, we need more representation for veterans, obviously. When you have people that are, I mean, sad to say, when they haven't gone through it, they're not a veteran, you know, they can't really advocate and fight for the things that we know that, you know, veterans know we need. We need more f- female representation. There has never been a Hispanic American representative from the state of Maryland in Congress, either in the Senate or in the House. Yeah, so I know that, you know, there's probably other states that have never, but I looked up the numbers. Census data just came out. Maryland is like the 24th 
ranking out of all 50 states or we're not even in like the, the bottom of the list we're kind of in the middle of the list and never been represented in congress do you want to reach out to those hispanic people and let them know that they are capable that there's more out there that maybe it's not so much that they've ran and haven't been elected but because they don't even run because they're not aware or they don't think it's even possible Yes, I yes, that's exactly that. And I just feel like in states like this, in Maryland, Hispanic and Latinos have never had anybody they could relate to. I think Hispanic and Latinos a lot of times get like a bad rap, especially everything that's happening, immigration and the border. And there's a lot of immigrants, Hispanic, Latino immigrants that tried to come to this country the right way. And they've worked so hard to get where they're at. And I just feel like I've been meeting so many people. You know how many people I've ran into? They're like, oh my God, you speak Spanish. This is awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what is the percentage of Hispanic or Latino people there in Maryland? Do you have any idea or even in your district? I, yes, I, in in Maryland, no, it's about like 12%, I believe. But the thing, the number that really triggered my attention is census data just came out between 2010 and 2020 the state of Maryland saw a 106 percent increase in Hispanic and Latino population there's been an increase of Hispanics coming to Maryland so you can expect that to keep going up I would imagine probably yes Yes, wow all right what is your platform then do you have those things that you mentioned is that your platform so obviously military and uh, veterans and military families, I'm like big on that, obviously being a veteran myself. I am, again, like I also mentioned, healthcare, affordable healthcare that makes sense. That's my whole thing. I want it to be affordable for people, but also you got to look at all sides of the things. I, I, I also don't think the U.S. should be getting into such high debt. It has to be methodical and thought out and that makes sense. We haven't even mentioned it. I have two kids, a 13-year-old and a 10-year-old, and they're both in public schools. And I see how, especially with this COVID, I'm really for school choice. And I say that because I've found myself multiple times feeling kind of desperate. I've wanted to change my kid from one school to the other, but I can't because if I do that, then now I have to be in a private school and I have to pay out of pocket. Whereas if something like school choice, again, something that makes sense, would allow a parent to be able to decide what is the best educational care for their kid, whether it be staying in public school, going to a private school, homeschooled or something, and that those funds can follow your child so that you don't have an increased financial burden. And obviously, again, trying to represent Hispanic and Latinos in this community, I feel like I've ran into so many people that they feel like they haven't really been represented because one, a lot of them maybe might not really understand the language or not interested and have never had anybody that they can relate to. That's a lot. How do you turn that off at night? Oh my goodness. I literally wake up. It wakes me up every day. I just think about it all day. I think what helps keep me kind of grounded is my kids and my my little dog. I got a little chihuahua. <laughs> just having them and having, I'm forced to turn it off. Like I got to go take my kid to school. I got to go pick them up. I got to go. It really helps me kind of turn it off a little bit. So I think they really help me 
not go too crazy because I have other responsibilities I have to take care of. And above anything, my kids and my family comes first. So (laughs) is your campaign up and running then? Do you do it from your home? Do you have an office? How does that work? No, it's up and running. I've got my website, rocaforcongress.com. If anybody wants to come visit, but yeah, I'm kind of running it out of my house. I'm in the initial networking phase, fundraising. I'm starting to go to events. I hasn't grown to the point where I'm going to have to need a separate office. I'm probably going to, but yeah, I'm up and running. I'm trying to meet as many people as I can, trying to really get to communities and been doing a lot of things for our police officers because I think a lot of our police officers feel like they're, I don't know, almost being attacked with get rid of the police and abolish police and that kind of stuff. And it's just really sad because I feel like just like our veterans, our first responders and our police are like our at-home heroes. I hope Carmelo doesn't mind me mentioning this, but Mariella knows Carmelo, who was a former guest of mine, and he really didn't want to talk about being a police officer. We kind of skimmed over that. And I'm not sure if that was because of the way things are right now, but he told me right up front, I really don't want to talk about that part. Yeah, my brother's a police officer in Massachusetts. And, you know, I've been going in the last two weeks, I've gone to about three police events. And I just feel like a lot of officers are feeling a lot of them are retiring they're, or they're leaving for other jobs because they feel like things have happened, unfortunate, bad things have happened that shouldn't have happened. But it's turned into this whole every police officer is bad and every police officer is out to get you. And I don't think that's the case at all. It's not. And I, I just feel like a lot of them are starting to feel like they don't even want to talk about it, don't even want because it's just a, a hard, touchy topic to talk about right now. It's such a weird place that our country's in right now, don't you think? Yes. How did we get to this point in such a short amount of time? I don't know. <laughs> I wish I knew, Marielle. It makes no sense to me at we, all. Yes. And, and I know, and there's a lot of veterans running for office, especially in Congress for this next cycle. And I just feel like there's a lot of people that want to see change and want to do better. That's why, even though it's scary sometimes, and you know it's scary sometimes, we need to stand up and vocalize what we believe in. And that doesn't mean we have to be rude or intolerant of others, but we can definitely stand up. Mm-hmm. Well, when is the election? So the primaries are next year, June of 2022. And if I make it past the primary, then the general election is November of 2022. So about a year away from the general election. Well, you have a year of fun activities <laughs> ahead of you. I hope you're taking yes. care of yourself and eating lots of good foods and exercising and taking care I of I am. Yourself. You know, I, I just got an exercise bike a couple months ago, and I'm telling you that bike is a godsend. It's amazing. It like I can get up in the morning. I've tried to go to the gym and like pay memberships, and it's just so hard for me to leave the house sometimes. Having something that is here that I pay for a membership, they're on the screen and they just tell me what to do, and it's amazing. Is it a Peloton? I it. Yes. I want to <laughs> get Peloton. me one of those. So I want to bike through France. <laughs> Listen, if you can get one, it is life changing. <laughs> I want to get that. All right. Right now, I just get on the treadmill in front of the TV. So that would be awesome. <laughs> 
Well, where else can we find you on social media? So uh, again, my uh, website is rocaforcongress.com, R-O-C-A for congress.com. I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, same Roca for Congress. I made it easy. Website and all the my social media accounts are Roca for Congress. <laughs> and Mary Ella, what does America mean to you? Oh, that's, I, that is, I love that question. I mean, I thought about this, you know, America to me means it's, it's our home. It's home that, that gives us so, so much. And I feel like it's so important to feel like at ease and comfortable and safe at home. I I was thinking how many times that I've gone on trips, work trips or gone on vacation and you're away from home and you, you just can't wait to get back. Cause you're like, I want to be home. Cause I know that's where I'm safe. And then uh, that moment when you walk into your house to being away for a while, you're like, Oh yes, I'm home. And I get to sleep in my you know, own bed. Yes. Our, your own bed, the smell of your <laughs> house when you walk in and like, that's why I feel America's our home and it provides us freedom, opportunities, safety for all people that choose to live here. Whether you were born here, you're an immigrant that moved here. We know this country is the greatest country in the world because of this this is why people come here this is why people want to live here and live the american dream freedom isn't free it comes with the sacrifice you know we all all these things to and to those that made that sacrifice the ultimate sacrifice for this country and we also owe it to those that are here that are proud to be american and work so hard every day to unite this country to move us forward to help each other and defend our Americanism. We have to help each other. That's the only way this country is gonna move forward and get back to, I love this, I had never heard this before, get back to the day after 9-11, how we were all so united and nothing mattered other than being an American and helping each other. So that's what America means to me. Thank you, Mariella, for sharing your American story. Thank you. It was so nice to meet you. Thank you for having me. Mariella is proof the American dream is available to anyone through resiliency and perseverance. She is an upcoming political force who will serve her community with integrity and vigor. Visit Mariella at rocaforcongress.com and you can follow her by the same name on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Be sure to support the We The People, Our American Story podcast by hitting subscribe. Give the gift of gratitude for this great country by letting family and friends know about the incredible, patriotic, heroic stories you hear on this podcast. I am humbled to have shared with you back-to-back stories of two powerful women. Next week is Stephanie Harmon with Utah Honor Flight. See you on Friday.